Hello and welcome back to part three of The Christmas Hirelings by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. I hope you're enjoying this heartwarming holiday tale as a special bonus episode of a cozy Christmas podcast as we celebrate Christmas in July. Today I will be reading for you the third part of Mary Elizabeth Braddon's The Christmas Hirelings. It will cover chapters 5 and 6, and it will continue to look at how Sir John Penlyon spends Christmas time with the three young children who have come to his house. Let's get right into the story today, so make yourselves comfortable, pull up a chair next to the Yule Log, settle in with your favorite Christmas drink, as we enjoy part 3 of Mary Elizabeth Braddon's The Christmas Hirelings. Chapter 5 The Christmas custom at Penlyon Place was one which, in Sir John's mind, reduced Christmas Day to a penitential anniversary. On Christmas Day, the family dinner was at 5 o'clock instead of at 8, in order that the servants might enjoy their evening. Their evening, echoed Sir John, ruefully, when the matter was put before him as a sacrifice which the head of a respectable British household was called upon to make. Their evening forsooth, as if they had not 365 evenings in the year in which to take their ease and be merry from 9 to 11, but must needs throw our lives out of gear and make our evening wretched with the memory of a ridiculously early dinner, while they are uproarious over snapdragon or forfeits in the servants' hall. The whole thing is an absurdity. Absurd as it was, Sir John had been coaxed into submission, and now on this particular Christmas day he was quite resigned to the five o'clock dinner and was amused at the delight of the little hirelings who clapped their hands and jumped and chirped like three grasshoppers. We're all going to have late dinner, they cried in a chorus of small silvery voices. You poor things, exclaimed Miss Hauberk. Do you never have late dinner at home, not even on Christmas day? Never, answered the boy. There isn't any late dinner. Mother dines with us very early, and then in the evening, when the candles are lit, we all have tea, mother and all of us, and jam sandwiches, and then I sit by the fire and learn my spelling while mother puts Lassie and Moppet to bed. He stops up last because he's the oldest, explained Moppet, who always addressed her small speeches to Sir John, and we don't learn no spelling because we're too young. But I know most of Laddie's words, she added with sly triumph. Laddie is very slow, and I'm rather quick. Too quick, Moppet, said Mr. Danby, lifting the tiny creature in his arms and looking at her with a touch of melancholy. If my watch were to go as fast as that small brain of yours, I should be afraid the works would wear out. The children went for a walk on the cliffs with Miss Hauberk and the gentleman whom they called Uncle Tom, and while they were strolling in the gray softness of a green Christmas, watching silvery seagulls wheeling and chattering in the soft gray sky, or congregating on a ledge of rocks, and the black shags diving for fish, Sir John came across the hillocky turf and joined them. Have you written all your letters? asked Moppet severely. As many as I care to write, little one. The mild afternoon tempted me to a stroll. Moppet waited for no permission, but at once possessed herself of Sir John's forefinger and held on to his thick doeskin glove with a firm little grip. He could but wonder that such tiny hands could hold him so tight. 
And what does Moppet think of the sea? He asked. I like your sea better than our sea at home. There are such big, big, big rocks, and such a lot of blackbirds, and such a lot of white and gray birds. Uncle Tom showed us a rock just now that was all covered with birds. You couldn't see the rocks for the birds. And then he threw a stone and they all flew off screaming. Screaming like human persons. It was so funny. Then it seems you live by the sea when you are at home, Moppet? Always, except when it's the season and then Mother lets her house to an English family. And we go to a farm where there are calves and pigs and ducks and chickens and where we all wear wooden shoes and run about in the mud. It's lovely. So, Moppet, you are only half an English girl. You live on the other side of the channel? said Sir John. I don't know what you mean by the channel. We live in France, but we're not Finch. The letter represented difficulties not always surmounted even in Moppet's exceptionally distinct speech. Mother's English, and Father's English, and we're English. Your father was English, corrected Sir John. You told me your father was dead. Ah, uh, but we never say was about father. Mother likes us to think that he's always with us, though we can't see him. His spirit is there, you know, and he is glad when we are good, and he is very, very sorry when we are naughty. Most of all, when we are unkind to each other. Laddie didn't think of that the day he gave me the bad slap, continued Moppet, as if she were speaking of an event in history like the Indian mutiny, or he wouldn't have done it, but he thought of it afterward and he was awfully sorry for having grieved father. How is it you don't all talk French, Moppet, since you live in France? Because we always live with mother and she talks English with us. She doesn't want us to learn French from servants and common people, so we only know the useful words, things you know, food and clothes and such things, and how to ask our way or to tell people where we live if we ever should be lost. And we pick up words sometimes. We can't help learning words on the sands when we hear the little French children who are playing there, though mother won't let us play with them. And mother is going to teach us French grammar by and by when we are old enough to learn properly. But I, concluded Moppet, putting on a consequential air, am not to learn anything for ever so long. What a privileged little person. But why not, pray? Because I'm much too clever, Mr. Minchin said. I'm greatly in advance of my age. If I were forced or worried about lessons, I might have water on the brain. Nothing could have surprised Moppet's grand air as she mentioned this possibility. Mr. Minchin is your doctor, I suppose? Yes. He's a hopafist. I thought so, growled Sir John. Nobody but a fool would have talked in that way before a dear little girl. No, he isn't a fool, really, replied Moppet, with her most grown-up air. He didn't know I could hear him. I was playing in the garden, and the parlor window was open, and I took my little chair under the window and sat there, quietly, and listened. That was not right, Moppet. So Mother said when I told her, but why shouldn't I listen? It was all about me. Perhaps but you weren't meant to hear it. I hate secrets about me. I don't like doctors that whisper in corners about medicines, and next morning mother comes with a dose of something horrid because of what the doctor said yesterday when I was playing with my doll. I call that mean of a doctor, but Mr. Minchin isn't like the horrid doctors. He only gives us globules or tablaws. Can you swallow tablaws without tasting them? 
I suppose you mean tabloids. No, Moppet, I have never tried them. The doctor hasn't attacked the gout fiend with anything so mild. Homeopathy has never tempered the wind for this shorn lamb. Dinner at Penlion Place on that particular Christmas day was a grand function. The cook had surpassed herself in the preparation of plum pudding, mince pies, creams, jellies, and junket, stimulated to effort by the thought of the children. What was the use of making tarts or jellies for Sir John's table when the master of the house rarely touched anything of that kind, hardly looked at the best trifle or tipsy cake that could be offered to him? But there was some pleasure in cooking nice things for children, even if the children were to make themselves ill by eating too much, or by mixing their puddings. Christmas came only once in the year, and no restraining consideration of health or the doctor should be allowed to spoil such a joyful season. So the creams and jellies and junket were placed upon the dinner table, as if it had been a ball supper, in order that the children should see them. And loud and joyous were the childish exclamations at the appearance of the feast at the clusters of tall candles in the old silver candelabra, the old-fashioned crystal dishes of bonbons and sparkling fruits, crowned with a large basket-shaped dish of great purple grapes, the flowers, the dazzling white damask and diamond-cut glass. There is nothing new or modest from Venice or Bohemia, no liberty silk or fantastic ornamentation. Sir John Penlyon's dinner table was not in the movement. Indeed, it was arranged very much as it had been for his grandfather when the century was young. I never saw late dinner before, said Moppet, and then with a sigh of contentment she explained, It's very beautiful. The children were dressed for dinner, and there was nothing shabbily genteel or tawdrily fine in their raiment. Laddie wore a neat little black velvet suit, and the two little girls were in white cashmere frocks which made them look more like dolls than ever. The crowning glory of the feast was the pudding. The room was darkened in the old-fashioned way, and the great plum pudding was brought in surrounded with flames, and all the company looked like ghosts in the blue unearthly light, a ceremony repeated all over the land on that day in houses where there were children. Rather boring for the grown-ups, but such a rapturous experience for the children especially for the smallest child, who is just a little frightened, perhaps, at the entrance of the demon pudding, and hysterical with delight when the first shock is over. This pudding was saluted with a tremendous clapping of tiny hands, which sounded like the applause of an audience of fairies. The whole business was rapture, most of all when it was discovered that there was some new sixpences in the pudding. The excitement increased to fever heat, when Mr. Danby found a sixpence in his portion, and exhibited an amount of pleasure which indicated an avarice disposition, and quite shocked Moppet. I suppose you'll give me your sixpence, she said, stretching out a tiny palm in his direction. You can't want it yourself. Can't I? ejaculated Mr. Danby. I do want it very much. Sixpence is sixpence all the world over. But a man of your age can't want sixpence, with grave remonstrance. Can't he? Why, there are lots of things that sixpence will buy for a man of my age. A cigar, for instance. But you can't want that sixpence. You have always lots of money. I've seen you take out shillings, a handful of shillings, from your waistcoat pocket when you were paying for our brioches at the pastry cook's. 
or buying us toys in the Grand Rue. You can't want that sixpence. Not to spend, Moppet. I shall keep it for luck. I shall bore a hole in it and wear it next to my heart in memory of a Christmas dinner with you. Your first late dinner. Oh, I'm glad of that, said Moppet, greatly relieved. I was afraid you were a miser after all. Laddie and Lassie greeted this speech with uproarious laughter. A miser? Uncle Tom a miser? Why, you know he is always bringing us things. Mother has to be quite cross sometimes to prevent him spending too much money upon us, said Laddie. Uncle Tom gave us our silk stockings, explained Lassie. They're real silk, not spun silk, like most little girls have. They came in a letter from Wares and Swells. Wasn't that a funny letter? Mother told Uncle Tom he was dreadfully extravagant, but he only laughed. He is not the least little bit of a miser. Not nearly such a miser as Moppet, who puts all her half-francs into a money box that won't open, and then asks Mother for sous to spend. There was more than one sixpence in the pudding. Each of the children discovered a glittering new coin, and in Moppet's portion there were two sixpences. The stout and serious butler helping the pudding on the carving table by the light of a single candle was suspected of treasonable practices. If the pudding with its halo of blue flame were a glorious thing, how much more glorious was the Christmas tree in the great Tudor Hall, the Christmas tree with innumerable tapers that were reflected in the bright armor of those dead and gone warriors whose prowess had helped to win victory at Agincourt, or whose strength had prolonged the bitter struggle at home in the Wars of the Roses. Miss Hauberk had sent round some little notes of invitation, swift and sudden as the fiery cross, and had assembled all the little ladies and gentlemen of the neighborhood, the pretty fair-haired girls from the rectory, and the children of the only two gentlefolks' families within an easy drive of Penlyon Place. And Mr. Nichols, the old bachelor doctor, had also been invited, perhaps in order to throw in a warning word occasionally when the revelers seemed inclined to overeat themselves. All the little girls had long hair, combed and brushed and crinkled to perfection, and they looked rather suspiciously at Lassie and Moppet's round-cropped heads. Have you and her had a fever? One little girl inquired of Moppet, pointing at Lassie as she asked the question. No. Then why was your hair cut so short? That's the French way, explained Moppet gravely. We are not French, but we live in France, and Mother likes our hair cut in the French way. Oh, sighed the long-haired child, relieved in mind. It's very ugly. Gracie had her hair like that once, but then she had a fever. Your mother must be a funny woman. No, she ain't, cried Moppet, tiring instantly. She ain't half so funny as your mother. Moppet pointed to a stout lady in black velvet and a Roman sash. A stout lady with a rubicon face. I shouldn't like my mother to be as fat as yours or as red, said Moppet, and with this parting shot marched off and left the long-haired, beautifully brushed and crinkled little girl inanely staring, shocked but far too stupid to retort, hereditary fleshiness muffling her intellectual faculties. Sir John Penlyon had just seated himself on the great oaken settle in the chimney corner, after somewhat languidly performing his duty as host. Moppet walked straight to him, clambered on his knee, and nestled her head in his waistcoat, gazing up at him with very much the same dumb devotion he had seen in the topaz eyes of a favorite clumber spaniel. 
Why, Moppet, are you tired of your new little friends? he asked kindly. I don't like children. They are so silly, answered Moppet with decision. I like you much better. Do you really now? I wonder how much you like me, as well as you like Junket? Oh, what a silly question, as if one could care for any nice thing to eat as well as one cares for a live person? Couldn't one? I believe there are little boys in Bocastle who are fonder of plum pudding than of all their relations. They must be horrid little boys. Laddie is greedy, but he's not so greedy as that. I shouldn't like to live in the same house with him if he were. For fear he should turn cannibal and eat you? What is a chamomile, and does it really eat people? Never mind, Moppet. There are none in our part of the world, said Sir John, hastily, feeling that he had made a faux pas, and might set Moppet dreaming of cannibals if he explained their nature and attributes. He had been warned by his friend Danby that Moppet was given to dreaming at night of anything that had moved her wonder or her fear in the day and that she would awaken with such dreams in a cold perspiration, with wild eyes and clenched hands. Her sleep had been haunted by goblins, and made hideous by men who had sold their shadows, and by wolves who were hungry for little girls in red cloaks. It had been found perilous to tell her the old familiar fairy tales, which most children have been told, and from which many children have suffered in the dim early years, before the restrictions of space and climate were understood, and wolves, bears, and lions located in their own peculiar latitudes. Sir John looked down at the little dark head which was pressed so lovingly against his waistcoat, and at the long dark lashes that veiled the deep-set eyes. "'And so you really like me?' said he. "'I really love you. Not so much as I love mother, but very, very much.' As much as Danby? As Uncle Tom? Better than Uncle Tom. But please don't tell him so. It might make him unhappy. I dare say it would. Uncle Tom has a jealous disposition. He might shut you up in a brazen tower. Another faux pas. Moppet would be dreaming of brazen towers. Imagination, assisted by plum pudding, would run readily into tormenting visions. Happily, Moppet made no remark upon the tower. She was thinking, thinking deeply, and presently she looked up at Sir John with grave, gray eyes, and said, I believe I love you better than Uncle Tom, because you are a grander gentleman, she said musingly, and because you have this beautiful big house. It is yours, isn't it? Your very, very own? My very, very own. And so you like my house, Moppet? And will you be sorry to go away? Oh, no because I shall be going to mother. Then you like your own home better than this big house? No, I don't. I should be very silly if I did. Home is a funny little house, in a funny little sloping garden on the side of a hill. Uncle Tom says it is very healthy. There is a tiny salon, and a tiny dining room, and a dear little kitchen, where the Bona Tofer lives, and four tiny bedrooms. It was a fisherman's cottage once. And then an English lady, an old lady, bought it and made new rooms and had it all made pretty. And then she died. And then Uncle Tom happened to see it and took it for mother. And was my little Moppet born there? No, I was born a long, long way off, up in the hills. What hills? 
the Northwest Provinces. It's an awful long way off, but I can't tell you anything about it, added Moppet, with a solemn shake of her cropped head. For I was born before I can remember. Laddie says we all came over the sea, but we mustn't talk to Mother about that time, and Laddie's very stupid. He may have told me all wrong. And doesn't Lassie remember coming home in the ship? She remembers a gentleman who gave her goodies, but not the ship. No, not the ship, but she thinks there must have been a ship, for the wind blew very hard, and the gentleman went up and down as if he was in a swing. Laddie pretends to remember all the sailors' names, but I don't think he really can. And the only house you can remember is the house on the hill? Where Mother is now, yes. That's the only one, and I'm very fond of it. Are you fond of this house? Yes, Moppet. One is always fond of the house in which one was born. I was born here. Moppet looked up at him wonderingly. Is that very surprising? he asked, smiling down at her. It seems rather surprising you should ever have been born, replied Moppet frankly. You are so very old. Yes, but one has to begin, you see, Moppet. It must have been a tremendously long time ago when you and Uncle Tom began. The explosion of a cracker startled Moppet from the meditative mood. It was the signal for the rifling of the tree. The crackers, the gold and silver and sapphire and ruby and emerald crackers, were being distributed and were exploding in every direction before Moppet could run to the tree and hold up two tiny hands, crying excitedly, Me! 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 It had been settled that the tree was not to be touched till the visitors had finished their tea. The house party, represented by Laddie and Lassie, had been fuming and fretting at the slowness with which cakes and buns were consumed. But now Uncle Tom, robed in a long maroon velvet dressing gown of Sir John's, with a black velvet cap on his head, to represent a necromancer, had given the signal and was scattering crackers among the eager hands of dancing, leaping children, all crying, Me! Me! Mr. Danby had taken a good deal of trouble to disguise himself. He had made himself a long beard of white horsehair, a beard which would have done for old father time himself, and which reached from Mr. Danby's ears to his waist. But the children hardly looked at him and expressed no astonishment at his appearance. All they cared for was to get the crackers and the toys. Me, me, another cracker, please, please, please give me one. That was the cry, varied by smaller voices saying, Give me a doll. Give me that pretty thing up there, pointing to a glittering gilt watch or to a fairy in star-spangled skirt. But the toys on the tree were little dainty things, more for ornament than use. The real toys were in a great washing basket, which two men brought into the hall, staggering under it. There were toys enough for everybody, and Mr. Danby distributed them with admirable judgment. He had even a packet for Miss Hauberk, tied with blue ribbon, out of which rolled a pair of long gloves, such as young ladies love. Adela screamed at sight of the gloves, just as the children screamed at their railway engines and stone bricks. When every child had received the most appropriate toy possible, and general contentment prevailed. The basket was not even half empty. Laddie peered into its depths curiously, hugging his clockwork steam engine under his arm, a green engine modeled upon those on the Southwestern Railway, which are said to be the finest in England. There are lots more toys, he said to Mr. Danby, 
with that shrewd, insinuating look which marks childish greed. Are we going to have those? No, laddie, you have had your share. Those are for other children. What children? You'll see, laddie, all in good time. Laddie thought the only good time would be a time which would give him a share in those unopened parcels. For Moppet, the necromancer had a doll, a lovely fair-haired doll with staring blue eyes, which occupied about a third of her face. Nature has endowed the expensive doll with these enormous eyes. To Moppet's lively imagination, the doll, from the moment it was deposited in her arms, became a personage. My darling, you must have a name, she murmured tenderly. I shall call you Mary after me. She ran to Sir John with her treasure. Isn't she lovely, she asked, and then without waiting to be answered. Her name is Mary. His wife's name. He started ever so slightly at the sound. So familiar long ago, so strange today. Why, Mary? She is called after me. I am her godmother. I shall have to teach her the catechism, the catechism that Laddie has to learn. And so you have an alias. I thought your name was Moppet, said Sir John, as she seated her doll on his knee and stood leaning against him. Touching and examining the divine piece of waxwork, its lace petticoats, its blue silk shoes and open-work socks, a very paragon of dolls. You knew my real name wasn't Moppet, she said. Nobody was ever christened Moppet. It's only one of Mother's nonsense names, like Laddie and Lassie. Oh, then you all have better most names for high days and holidays. Pray, what is Laddie's name? The same as yours. Oh, he is a John, is he? Yes, John, oh, but not Sir John. He is not a Bewanit, making a great deal of the strange word which the servants had taught her as an attribute of the grave elderly gentleman to whom she had taken so kindly. Will he be a Bewanite when he grows up? That's his own lookout. I take it he will have to win his baronetcy. Win it at Cowd's? Why, what does my little Moppet know about cards? Lots. We play at speculation with Uncle Tom for nuts in Vignette Un, and he says that's almost as good as Bak 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 Kara. She stumbled over the word, but finished it triumphantly. Oh, I'm afraid Uncle Tom is a dangerous person to be with children. He is. Mother says so. He takes us down to the plage and gives us donkey rides. And I once fell off, this with an air, and grazed my elbow. The blood came through the sleeve of my overall. Lassie has never fallen off a donkey. Laddie has. They generally lie down with him. He kicks them too much. They will bear a good deal of kicking because their skins are so thick. But Laddie overdoes it. He is not a nice boy. Not always. Moppet concluded musingly. She liked standing quietly at Sir John's knee with her doll, though the other children were playing post in a noisy circle around Mr. Danby and Adela on the other side of the hall. The many colored tapers on the Christmas tree were all extinguished, but not burnt out. Only half burnt, and the tree was still covered with golden balls and tiny oranges and glittering green and ruby fish and fairy dolls nodding and trembling in space. Wouldn't you like to go and play with the children over there, Moppet? They seem to be having a spirited game. 
I don't care for games. I like to be here with you and Mary. You don't mind me here, do you? No, my dear. I think I can put up with you till your bedtime. That word bedtime is always a damper to juvenile spirits. In all those early years of life, the idea of bed is pretty much what the idea of Portland or Dartmoor is to the criminal classes. Children hear their elders talk of wanting to go to bed and wonder at such a perverted taste. There is always a sense of humiliation in the premature banishment. The grown-ups sit smiling and talking, bid goodnight condescendingly in a parenthesis, and one feels that their evening is only just beginning. The elder sisters step into a carriage, perhaps, and are whisked off to the opera or playhouse, while strong-armed nurse conducts the little ones to their nursery cots, to premature night and darkness that seem endless. It is a cruel inequality of fortune. Isn't it a lovely tree? Moppet inquired presently, her eyes wandering to that fairy-like conifer in the middle of the hall, with horizontal branches rising tier above tier, laden with things of beauty. Yes, it is a fine specimen of the arbor toyensis. There's only one thing that makes me sorry about it, said Moppet with a sigh. And what might that be? Everybody hasn't got a tree. Oh, you are a little socialist. You would like all children to have just as good a Christmas as you are having. Why shouldn't they? They're just as good as me, ain't they? I suppose they are, Moppet. Only you happen to be here, and they are somewhere else. But don't be downhearted, my pet. There are a great many Christmas trees blooming with toys and golden flowers tonight, and thousands of children dancing around them, just as happy as you and Lassie and Laddie. Are there more children who have a Christmas tree than the children who haven't a Christmas tree? asked Moppet after a pause, with the child's love of statistics. No, I'm afraid there are more of the treeless children than of the fortunate ones. Isn't that a pity? If it was only the naughty children who had to go without toys, it wouldn't matter, argued Moppet severely. But I dare say there are naughty boys and girls getting toys and crackers, while there are poor good children without so much as a penny toy, only because their mothers haven't any money. Our mother isn't rich, but we've had a Christmas tree ever since I can remember. Quite two Christmases. It was only a little tree, but such a pretty little tree. Uncle Tom sent us all the toys and ornaments and little colored candles in a big wooden box, and we all helped Mother to dress the tree. It was more fun than not knowing anything about it and standing outside the door in the dark, and then coming in and being surprised. Our fun lasted ever so much longer, and we were surprised after all when we saw the tree with the candles all lighted. It wasn't a bit like the same tree. And you wouldn't have known the dolls if you had met them in the street? said Sir John, smiling at her grave earnestness. Bedtime, the inexorable summons, put an end to the conversation. The fair-haired rectory girls and the other little people were bidding goodnight, and the girls were being muffled in pink and blue hoods and cloaks, while the boys struggled manfully with the sleeves of their warm overcoats. A cold wind blew in from the vestibule when the outer door was opened, a nipping, frosty wind. There's a change in the weather, said Mr. Danby. They've had snow at Brighton and at Portsmouth. I shouldn't wonder if our green Christmas were to change to a white one. Oh, how nice that would be, cried Laddie, clapping his hands. Would you like to be snowed up at Penlyon Place? Well, we don't often get snow in Cornwall, but perhaps we may be able to oblige you, said Sir John, gaily. Chapter 6 
When Moppet looked out of the window the next morning, she looked at a white world, a world of fairy-like trees, whose interwoven branches made a brilliant lacework that sprinkled in the sun. A northeast wind was blowing under a blue, cloudless sky. It must have been snowing for a long time to cover the park and gardens with that thick white carpet. But the morning was bright and sunny, and Moppet thought the change delightful. Pleasant news greeted her at breakfast. First, a little present from Mother, a soft Shetland shawl knitted by Mother's own fingers. And snowy white like the outside world, a shawl to wrap Moppet's head and shoulders when she ran out into the garden. Lassie had one exactly like it, and Laddie had a big, thick white scarf. They had come in a post parcel to Mr. Danby. Did Mother know it was going to be cold? wondered Lassie. Mother's thoughts always go before things, said Moppet gravely. The next pleasantness was the news of a party, another children's party, which had been planned by Mr. Danby and Miss Hauberk, and which was submitted to Sir John for approval. Would he object to their giving the cottage children a tea party in the schoolhouse that evening, with the reversion of the Christmas tree as the feature of the entertainment? They had plenty of toys left for distribution, plenty of Tom Smith crackers. Dear Tom Smith, sighed Moppet, what a nice man he must be. You don't object, do you? She asked Sir John, squeezing her chair with a high cushion upon it, to bring her up to table level, a little closer to his own. You'd like the cottage children to have some fun. They all looked so nice at church yesterday in their pretty red cloaks. Sir John gave them those red cloaks, observed Miss Hauberk. How good of you, but you don't object, do you? They are such tidy children. I'm sure they'll be careful of their toys. Moppet had her doll on her lap, wedged in between her pinafore and the table, and supposed to be consuming occasional spoonfuls of bread and milk. Sir John did not object. They could have a tea party for all the children in Cornwall if they liked, if they could get the pixies to bring them. What are the pixies? Moppet had to be told about the pixies before she would peacefully finish her bread and milk. She rattled her spoon against the basin in her excitement, and the dark gray eyes seemed to grow larger as she listened. There were occasional snow showers in the day, just enough to maintain the freshness of that vast white carpet, which had been unrolled over the park. The northeast wind blew with a biting sharpness, which it rarely knows on that western coast, and swept every cloudlet out of the and swept every cloudlet out of the bright blue sky. The children wore their warmest wraps when they ran out on the terrace, which the gardeners had swept from end to end, piling up a bank of snow on the outer side all the length of the broad walk, a store of material for the building of a snowman which Mr. Danby assisted them to pile up at the further end of the walk, out of sight of the windows, lest he should be an eyesore. This rugged and shapeless monster was not completed till the children's early dinner, though they toiled vigorously digging out lumps of snow from the bank, running backwards and forwards, flushed and eager, fetching and carrying for that accomplished sculptor, Uncle Tom, who desisted not from his labors till the monster towered like Milton's Lucifer, but with no more shape or likeness of humanity than a pillar post box. The likeness was achieved presently by an old cloth cap of Uncle Tom's, a short pipe, two bits of coal for eyes, and two bits of stick for nose and mouth. I think he'll do now, said the sculptor, complacently. He's rather crooked, criticized Laddie, 
while the girls stood, flushed and panting, with no feeling but admiration for this great work of art. Don't say that, laddie, cried the sculptor. Crookedness means destruction. A snowman must hold himself straight or he is doomed. You'd better bring me some more snow. They rushed off with their spades and wooden baskets, spades and baskets that had been used on the beach by a former generation, and which had been produced from an old toy closet by Sarah, the housemaid. They brought more snow, and Uncle Tom thickened the base of the monster till he looked like a druidic monument, and then they left him to his fate. He'll last now till the thaw, said Uncle Tom. Will the thaw spoil him? Yes, when the thaw comes, he will silently vanish away like the snark. There will be nothing left of him but a great puddle at the end of the terrace. Uncle Tom sent the children off to get their shoes and stockings changed before dinner. He was like a nurse in his care of them. Sir John was out shooting, tramping through snowy plantations, and the luncheon dinner was a very noisy meal. Mr. Danby and Miss Hauberk let the children do as they liked. It was bank holiday, and that meant liberty for great and small, Mr. Danby said. There never was a merrier meal eaten at place, certainly not within Adela's recollection. Christmas used to be so dreadfully dull in this house, said the young lady. One felt one ought to be a little livelier because it was Christmas, and that only made one feel duller, don't you know? It was all very well for you, Mr. Danby, out shooting all day with Sir John and playing billiards in the evening, but I could only read a novel or brood over all the Cinderella's I was missing. Poor Adela had been sent to Penlyon Place, as into captivity, for more Christmas seasons than she could count, her mother and father declaring that it was her duty to go and amuse her uncle at that festive time since he had always been particularly fond of her. This idea of fondness on Sir John's part had no definite basis, but Miss Hauberk was in the habit of talking as if Adela were her uncle's acknowledged heiress. He must leave his money to somebody, she told her husband, and why not Adela? After all these years of estrangement, he will never take Sybil into favor again. There's nothing so sure to happen as the unexpected, said Mr. Hauberk sententiously. You had better not reckon Adela's chickens before they are hatched. Your brother is not obliged to leave his money to anybody. He may leave it to a hospital, as many such old curmudgeons do. You have no occasion to call my brother a curmudgeon. He has never given me any reason to call him anything else. You and he never understood each other. As for Adela, he likes having her at place. And there can be no doubt he is very much attached to her. The village party was quite as successful as the genteel party, and Moppet was a much more prominent personage in the schoolrooms than she had been the night before at Penlyon. Her whole heart was in this rustic entertainment. Her eyes shone like stars. Her cheeks were flushed with delight. The pretty little schoolhouse with rooms for schoolmaster attached had been built thirty years before by Sir John, soon after he came to his own and everything about the building was sound and neat and trim. The Christmas tree was in the boys' schoolroom. The tea party was in the girls' room. The children were to know nothing about that glorious tree or that noble collection of toys for distribution until after tea, when the lights were to be suddenly extinguished and the door between the two schoolrooms was to be opened and the tree was to be seen with all its fairy-like tapers burning. It would be a thrilling moment, and Moppet's heart beat fast as she thought of the children's rapture. Have they never seen a tree? she asked Adela, 
Never, never, never? No, they have never seen one. There are so few great houses about, and there have been no children at place for the last twenty years. These poor little things have never had any gaiety, except the rector's summer treat. And they couldn't have a Christmas tree in the summer, could they? mused Moppet. That would be simply silly. Moppet held office on this occasion. She was to distribute the presents, assisted by the schoolmaster, who would tell her the names of the children and advise her choice. There was to be no long-bearded necromancer this evening. Mr. Danby did not think it worthwhile to disguise himself, remembering how little notice the genteel children had taken of his robe or his beard, and how all their thoughts had been centered on the tree and the toy box. These children would no doubt be even more stolid and unimpressionable. There they were at tea, solemnly munching, solemnly handing in their mugs for more of the steaming brew, tea ready, milked and sugared in a huge urn. No nice distinctions as to sweetness or non-sweetness. No study of individual tastes. Hot, sweet, milky tea for everybody. The buns were the feature of the feast. The piled up dishes of bright yellow cake were not neglected, but the buns were first favorite. Moppet could not have believed so many buns could disappear in so short a time. It was almost as good as seeing a conjurer dispose of live rabbits. The cake dishes were half full when the meal was finished, but not a bun remained. Suddenly, there came a darkness, and one simultaneous, Oh! Oh! arose from the children, while such vulgar words as, Locks! and Crikey! floated in the steamy atmosphere. And then... The door was opened, and the tree was seen, and instantly saluted by a tremendous clapping of hands and a thunder of hobnailed boots as the children all trooped into the next room. Oh, it was a noble tree. It looked ever so much larger here than in the great hall at Penlion Place. The head of the fairy on the topmost branch brushed against the schoolroom ceiling as she swayed to and fro, waving a beneficent wand. The crackers were a source of rapture, and Tom Smith was the hero of the evening. Laddie was in his element, letting off crackers all over the schoolroom, with cottage boys who had never seen a cracker before, and who cried, Crikey! and My! whenever one went off. Laddie did not expect another toy, but he was determined to have a good go at the crackers. Lassie, the prim little lady, stood close against Adela Hauberk's skirt while these ruder festivities were going on not relishing the odor of corduroy and boot leather, which is inevitable in such company. But Moppet was moving from child to child in the friendliest way, handing the toys allotted to each, explaining, patronizing, altogether mistress of the situation, a lady bountiful of two feet high, flushed and feverish with pleasure. While the excitement was at its highest point, Sir John appeared suddenly in the doorway. Moppet flew to him in a moment. It seemed as if he always exercised the most powerful attraction for that young person. She gravitated to him as surely as the apple falls to the ground. Isn't it lovely? She asked him. Ain't they happy? Ain't their faces red? And ain't yours red, Moppet. Why, you are in a high fever. I think you had better sit on my shoulder and see the fun, instead of running around about in this black hole of Calcutta. After the sharp evening air outside, the atmosphere of the schoolroom seemed like the heat of an oven. The toys were all distributed, the box was empty, and all the dolls had been unhooked from their perches 
on the waving green boughs. Only the impossible golden fruits and golden silver fish and flags remained, and the tapers were expiring in smoke. Moppet sat on Sir John's shoulder, surveying the crowd, each child engrossed in its own pleasure, examining its booty. Now, boys and girls, said the schoolmaster, three cheers for Sir John Penlyon. No, no, remonstrated Sir John. I've nothing to do with the affair. Remonstrance was useless. The loud chorus arose about him deafeningly. And now for Miss Hauberk. More cheering, loud and shrill, treble and bass. And now for Mr. Danby, who is always so kind to you. More and more cheering, much louder, much shriller, as from hearts overcharged with warmest feelings. And now for the little girl who gave out the toys. Another special cheer. Final, at least, for the party from place. For Sir John turned and fled, with Moppet sitting on his shoulder. But more cheering sounded through the winter darkness from the schoolhouse behind them as they hurried along the frosty road through the park. Oh, what a happy evening it has been, said Moppet from her perch on Sir John's shoulder. And now you are ready for Bedfordshire, said Mr. Danby. No, Uncle Tom, I am not the littlest bit sleepy. In spite of this energetic asseveration, Moppet was discovered to be fast asleep when the party arrived at place, and in that unconscious condition was undressed and put to bed, and knew nothing more till next morning, when she awoke bright and fresh, and greatly astonished that it should be tomorrow. Well, that concludes my reading for today. I, I think in chapter five, we really see Braddon's mastery of character description. She perfectly captures the, the joy that children have at Christmas time. Even though this book was published in 1893, it rings true today. You know, the excitement of waiting for Christmas, of coming in and seeing the Christmas tree, which I shudder to think back then had candles on it instead of the electric lights we use today. You know, you're right there with the kids. You ca She captures the spirit. You're excited with them. Moppet is such, such a wonderful character. I've really enjoyed reading her parts. Um, it's not often I get called on to play the part of a little girl. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. Uh, I really enjoyed reading her and, and reading that chapter. And then um, chapter six, when they take the Christmas party down to the to the village children and have it in the schoolhouse. Um, I think that's so neat how Moppet is getting Sir John to to change and how the change came almost immediately. But now, you know, she's getting him to focus on other people, which is which is a, a, always a good thing. We need to be more focused on others, especially those in need. And, and I love her compassion she expresses in chapter 6 and, and in also chapter 7 of children who may not be able to enjoy the the party, the, the Christmas decorations, the the presents, all that they're enjoying. And, and it makes her sad that there are those out there who are so poor, they can't have that. And, and so I love that they didn't take the Christmas party to the village. There was a bunch of presents left over and instead of just giving it more to the rich kids they or to the certain class of children, they saved some back, or, or maybe they bought extra to make sure 
to give to the village children who may be poorer. And contrast that with what Sir John was saying about children at the beginning of the story. And you see he's already come quite a long way. And so I cannot wait. I I say this all the time, but I cannot wait to read you the next chapter. And I hope it brought you lots of warm and cozy Christmas memories. I have really enjoyed reading this in installments. It reminds me of when I used to read to my kids when they were little and we got into chapter books. I'd read a couple of chapters every night or every other, every couple of nights. And then the chapter would end on a cliffhanger and the kids would be like, oh, no, no, one more chapter, please. And sometimes I'd relent. Sometimes I'd have to send them, uh, well, send them to Bedfordshire, as uh, Danby would put it. Uh, And I really just want to finish this story for you because chapter seven, you know, concludes the story, but there's a lot that happens in this next chapter. So it's such a, a beautiful ending. Stay tuned. Next Friday comes the final part of The Christmas Hirelings by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. So until next time, be kind to each other and do good. And remember that there is nothing in the world so irresistibly contagious as laughter and good humor. Have a very Merry Christmas.